The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. This is The Money Show, and I am Bruce Whitfield, and it is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action and insights through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. This is The Money Show on a Tuesday night, and so a brand new feature for you this evening, by the way. Just after seven, we're going to be bringing you a signals feature. It is a feature that is designed to help you decipher what's happening in the news. If you see something, an anomaly, if you see something weird, if you see something, you go, I wonder what that means. Let us know, because we're always looking for signals. We're finding signals everywhere. Today's big signal um, is one that we're going to deal with in the first hour of the show, but we've got other signals for you to uh, ponder in the second hour. The first one is the signal being sent by the falling American inflation rate. It's come in much better than expected. 3.2% year-on-year in October, down from an annual rate of 3.7% in September. And that's the clearest indication yet that all of the scepticism around whether or not inflation is under control is being put to bed. Uh, Certainly that was the effect that it had on the currency market. We saw the RAND strengthen more than 2% on the day. The JSE rocketed, particularly commodity shares on the day but there were very few shares in the red a couple of retailers uh, ended down on the day but otherwise Naspers and Process we also saw the likes of uh, um, of the banking shares the gold shares the platinum stocks had a fantastic session so really a very good day on the JSE that good day on the JSE also was playing out in the United States and across Europe and the United Kingdom as well as the day sort of came to a close in our time zone but so very positive on that front. We'll talk to Patrick Matidi at Alawani Capital Partners about stock markets today and the signals that he is seeing. Should we be dipping into reserves to stave off budget cuts? Certainly Niva Macheta thinks so. She is a former COSATO economist. She now works, um, continues to work in economics. And she's saying we could be dipping into some of the reserves of the Unemployment Insurance Fund. Um, and we should be doing that rather than cutting the budgets of police and education. It's certainly a very appealing idea that you can uh, take money from Peter to pay Paul. But what happens when Peter runs out of cash? That conversation with Neva Machetla coming up this evening, plus our investment school at half past seven. There's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff for you tonight on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Not only that, but our economy created jobs. Brilliant news. Number of people in work today, same as it was before COVID. Nikki Weimar, chief economist at Nedbank. They say the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, Nikki. This is progress, although our unemployment rate, of course, remains disastrously high by any metric. Yes, I think it is progress. I mean, any jobs created at any point in time in any manner is is good, I suppose. Except if it's now, of course, in the the illegal sector, let's put it that way. But yes, so really good news. Um, But at the same time, we took a big hit during COVID. So we moved to an artificially low level. And as those services industries that were heavily affected by COVID slowly and surely recovered, they, of course, being labor intensive, it took us back to, let's call it a normalization in their activity. It took us back in the labor market 
to, to pre-COVID levels. And I think the challenge now is to, to continue rising. And now it becomes, I think, a greater function. There isn't a structural correction occurring anymore. It's now going to be a bigger function of what actually happens to economic growth. Um, and not just what it is today, but what it is expected to be. Because clearly the decision to expand your workforce uh, is as much driven by today as what you think will happen in the future. And, yeah, people are very pessimistic about that future right now, despite some really good statistics coming out of the United States today. I don't know how much comfort that is going to bring South Africans who are in the business of trying to grow their businesses. I think in the sense that it doesn't really, um, I mean, it, it can be a positive for us, but our ability to exploit that positive, as we've seen, um, is limited. And it's limited because we have all of these structural issues that is holding back activity. And we all know them. I won't bore you by repeating them. No. Um, and obviously, <laughs> when when you've got all of that uh, even if the global economy turns out to be far more resilient than anyone anticipated and you see uh, a, a pickup, you see interest rates come down faster, you see a pickup in economic activity um, and the U.S. doing well, which will help, of course, Europe and everyone who trades with the U.S., including China, um, then, you know, clearly our ability to exploit that when we've, we can't get our goods to the port and through the port out to the market, um, we can't produce as much as we would because the power keeps going out, is fairly limited. And that's one of the reasons why more than four out of ten of us, four out of ten, cannot find a job for love or money. Give away their labor. They're struggling even to do that because there just aren't the opportunities available in a massively constrained economy. Exactly. And, and, and unless we can lift those constraints, we kind of just keep banging our head against the wall um, and we don't seem to learn from those mistakes. And then obviously also, you know, um, transport costs, you saw a decline in discouraged workers, which I think is good news. So more of them went into the labor market, successfully got jobs. But I, I think that, you know, for them, a big driver is also um, essentially just what petrol costs, what it costs to get taxi fare, uh, yeah. to go for a job interview. And so inflation is important, regardless of how you look at it. And secondly, obviously, the, the easing in inflation has helped them and that brought them back into the market. And then we do need to work on a better system where people that most need to look for work are not so far from the places where the employment is occurring. Yeah. Alan Windy, the Western Cape Premier today, pointing out that when government does its job, it frees the rest of us to do what we do. Um, the, the Western Cape unemployment rate, 20%-ish, um, way more than it should be. But by South African standards, it's a remarkable achievement. Is there merit in Alan Windy's claim that government doing what it does, which is manage the basics, um, frees up everybody else to do their work and create the jobs? Absolutely. And I mean, it's really all about creating an environment in which companies can operate efficiently and people have can move around at a relatively affordable cost and be mobile and seek out opportunities um, and exploit those opportunities. And we don't have such an environment. In fact, by all counts, um, yeah, anecdotal evidence, if you like, or maybe hard evidence, if you look at the Auditor General's report, we're actually moving backwards as far as that's concerned.
The trouble is, we've got more people working today than were before COVID, but there are you know, 8 or 9% more of us than there were before COVID as well. Population growth has not slowed, um, and the population has grown every year um, during, co- uh, yeah, b- during COVID and since COVID. And so while we are creating jobs, we are, in real terms, still going backwards is my understanding. Yeah, so what this comes down to is that your labor force is growing faster than the rate at which you are creating employment. So we don't create enough jobs to just absorb new entrants. So there's a big portion of new entrants that go unemployed as well. And, 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 And we first, we've got to create more jobs so that we can absorb the new entrants and at the same time make a dent to the unemployment rate. And there I think you can you sort of categorize it into two potential sources of unemployment. One is more cyclical and the other one is more structural. And the bulk of South Africa's unemployment is unfortunately structural. And that Thank is you, your Thank you unemployment. very much. In, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki Weimar, the chief economist at uh, at Nedbank. Listening to that, Leanne Emery Hunter. Now, Leanne is the Chief Operating Officer at the Youth Employment Service. Remember the President's claim that the Youth Employment Service was going to create a million jobs in three years. Um, we're not anywhere close to that. And Leanne, I mean, Nikki Weimar making the point that getting that first job is so difficult. And the vast majority of young people today, I mean, we've got an average unemployment rate of just over 40%. Still youth unemployment in the 70s, uh, by my last calculation. I wonder whether or not you're seeing any benefit of this recovery in job uh, in job creation uh, through through the Yes campaign. Hi Bruce, good to be here. So I think the 0.7% increase in youth unemployment, seeing around 300 and um, sorry, in, in, in uh, overall employment, is certainly something to be celebrated. And we are seeing that with a bounce back in our economy and as load shedding decreasing with these kind of numbers um, being the proof in the pudding, that certainly business has more of an appetite to join the program and obviously able to absorb more young people. I think what we see at YES is that it's not just about a job, it's about ensuring that young people are placed into quality working experiences in future-facing industries where they can go on to become the game changers that will create more opportunities in the future. Are we seeing that corporate activity, however, being manifested? I mean, uh, that is the question, I suppose. Leanne Emery-Hunter, not a great cell phone signal. It's the curse of the day, unfortunately. Chief Operating Officer at the Youth Employment Service. We'll get Leanne back on a a better quality phone line this evening um, because you need to hear what she has to say. She is part of an organization that strives on a daily basis to get experience for young people, the vast majority of whom are never going to get that first job. Because that first job is the one that gets you into the workplace. That first job is the one that gets you the experience. It gets you into the habit of turning up. It gets you into the habit of actually doing a full day's work in return for compensation. And once you get that first job, it's a bit like anything, really. Um, You are then in the market. You're able to network. You're able to set up your own contacts. But when you're sitting outside in a remote area, and I think it's something that Nikki Weimar mentioned just a moment ago, if you are sitting far away from a place of work and it's going you've got to choose today between having some food to eat tonight and going for a job interview you maybe on day one you can skip 
the the the, the supper. But on day two, you're peckish. You're very, very hungry, and you can't keep doing that. Leanne is with us again, the Chief Operating Officer at the Youth Employment Service, Leanne Emery Hunter. Sorry, Leanne, the signal was rubbish, and I hope it's better now. The benefit, you say, you are beginning to see, but I wonder, in a market where confidence is as low as it is, business confidence, consumer confidence, whether we're seeing long-term opportunities being created. Thanks, Bruce. So, yes, we, you know, being the biggest private sector-led job creation initiative in South Africa, we've seen about 1,557 corporates join the movement, which is obviously something to be celebrated. And we are looking at a run rate of about two to 3,000 jobs we are creating. And at our latest um, count around 45% of our youth are reporting that they're getting um, their proposed program and around 15% are in entrepreneurial activity which really is showing the game changing um, factor that youth are going on to become job creators themselves. With that said, you know, unless we have much bigger um, instance from a structural point of view, our, you know, our economy, we need economic growth, we need our education system to to educate young people so that they are work ready, and we need structural issues um, to be fixed in our countries. And those are all obviously long-term fixes that need to be had, but we are seeing that interventions like YES are making a big difference in being able to break that unemployment trap that so many young people find themselves in. Leanne, thank you. The cell phone signal not doing any favours tonight. Leanne Emery Hunter, Chief Operating Officer at the Youth Employment Service at YES. So beginning to get some progress and that's such important and welcome news. It really is. On a day where US inflation is sending a very important signal, that signal is that inflation may very well be under control in the United States. It's certainly a signal that the market is interpreting and we'll pick up with Patrick Matidi about that. He is at uh, Alawani Capital Partners in a moment. But I see also today that foreign businesses are pulling money out of China at a faster rate than they're putting it in and it's because china is slowing uh they've got low interest rates they've got uh, real issues uh, between themselves and the united states the united states does not want to be usurped as the global superpower that five six years ago by 2025 china was going to be bigger well that target's not going to be met but uh, there is a meeting happening this week between uh, the chinese leader uh, xi jinping and the u.s president joe biden and it's going to be interesting to see how they communicate and whether or not it's going to be a productive meeting in a time where china's recording big deficits in foreign investment uh, the foreign companies are not reinvesting their profits in china at one point it was the easiest way to make money you make a profit you reinvest it and you make a bigger profit they're rather moving their money out of the country as china faces slower growth and they're seeing lots of corrections happen of course within that economy that is going to be a key factor um, of course as we head towards 2024 and what we hope is going to be a less difficult year than the last five the money show with bruce whitfield is brought to you by apsa cib action-led insights in retail's golden quarter this black friday to drive collaborative impact through the apsa insight series Absence of registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. To markets, to markets we go. Patrick Martini, the head of equities at Alawani Capital Partners. What a day 
We had. I would leave the glory and the bragging up to you, Patrick, because it was special. It was nice to see. Yeah, good evening, Chris, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, indeed, you know, after a fairly tentative, you know, first few days of the month of November, uh, we finally got a proper leg up, up about 2.5% on the all share. Uh, pretty much all the indices up are quite nicely, uh, even resources and financials, you know, that have been lagging the last few sessions. If you look at the platinum groups, you know, uh, anywhere up between 6 and 8%, uh, that being uh, the big three. Uh, the downside really is Bitcoin. Uh, they had a trading update, which was a little bit light compared to expectation. But other than that, uh, it's all green and it's all you know, sort of uh, exciting. And we're seeing that also playing out in the currency market, where the rand has become a bit strong against the dollar. And also on our domestic bond market, where we're seeing the curve down about 20 basis points on the back of uh, the U.S. inflation number that came out a lot better than expected. Yeah, and that inflation number is something, it's so far removed from our reality. But it is an inflation number that sends a signal that the U.S. will start cutting interest rates in the new year, or is more likely to start cutting interest rates in the new year. Some speculation we could start seeing cuts as early as the first quarter of next year, which seems ambitious based on how cautious the Federal Reserve has been in terms of its handle on inflation. What's your reading? Yeah, I think it is you know, still early days. Uh, remember, the Fed has got a 2% target. So the, the last print uh, is around a 3.3%, um, which came out. Bearing in mind the peak uh, in uh, U.S. inflation was about 11.4%, uh, which was around August of last year. So indeed, we've seen a nice you know, uh, uh, decline in inflation on the back of the aggressive rate hikes that uh, the Fed has put through. But whether the Fed will want to see 2% first before they start to contemplate cutting, I think that becomes the next big question. So yes, we are on the downward trajectory, which is fantastic. Uh, but the way they start actually to preemptively cut, you know, before we get to that target of two percent, I think that you know the market will start to ponder over the next few sessions. Yeah, but for now we celebrate the gains. But I just look at the, the the magnitude of the gains, and it is such an enormous swing in sentiment, and a huge swing in sentiment in the property sector, enormous swing in sentiment in the commodities players, all of the gold shares, the platinum stocks, and even amongst the company like Remgro, for example, up six percent on the day. That volatility, I think, is telling us a story of just huge fear, trepidation, and relief when things do look like they might go right yeah absolutely i mean i think i think patrick matidi um again the cell phone's letting us down producers i don't know if there's a better plan than that let's try patrick one more time sorry yes the 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 signals of uh, you know again the, the huge volatility and the huge nature of the moves Patrick Matidi in and out this evening here on The Money Show. We'll try and get him on a better quality phone line tonight. Uh, but certainly the currency market has been a key feature of today's activity. We saw the rand considerably better, more than 2% better against the US dollar. It's around 18.33 this evening, 22.87 to the pound. It's where it was a week or two ago. To the euro tonight, around 19.90. Now, look, these are outrageously expensive levels for the rand, but um, it is 
is good to see the currency going in a better direction as underlying commodity prices start to nudge their way higher. Decent moves in the platinum price, certainly supportive of those shares today. Anglo-American platinum was up 9%. Sibania and Impala each up 7%. Harmony building another on yesterday's very strong gains, yesterday in double digits. Today, Harmony presenting another 7% gain at 97 rand 54. Back to Patrick and hopefully a more stable phone line, Patrick. Um, these uh, the, the huge whip swings happening in these shares does suggest that there is a huge amount of trepidation. Yeah, Bruce, sorry about that. I got cut off. Uh, as indeed, I was, as I was saying, I mean, I think the last few uh, trading sessions, you know, going back as far as uh, August, where we have seen a lot of uh, you know, pullback in the market. Uh, August, September, you know, negative returns for the equity market. I think a lot of it to do with this narrative of higher for longer, uh, that being inflation and other interest rates. So now this number that came out uh, out of the U.S., you know, providing some comfort that perhaps you know, we could start to see rate cuts coming through, and then money being put to work, uh, where we have seen uh, perhaps uh, a few of the players sitting on the sidelines, and then now with some level of certainty coming through, you know, being comfortable to can actually deploy capital and handle these wide swings that we are seeing, uh, where some of the stocks that have been oversold, if I may say so, especially on the platinum side, you know, finding a bit of a you know, reprieve from the investor side of things. And it's a lesson to us not to, you know, try and prejudge these markets too much. I mean, there is a logic to markets over the long term. In the short term, it's bedlam. And today was one of those bedlam days, but going in the right direction. We grab them when we can, um, even though when it's got nothing to do with what's happening here. Certainly, Hammerson up 15% was an outlier. Harmony up 7 Anglo-American Platinum up 9 and Remgro up 6%. The property sector te- tends to rally whenever there's a sniff of a potential rate cut at some point in the future. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that sector has pretty much been uh, downtrodden and almost forgotten. So, so a combination of lower interest rates you know, is good for them because they tend to be highly geared businesses. But but also, you know, if, if you look at, I guess, uh, the overall sentiment in the economy, you know, when you start to see employment numbers coming through, you know, it does start to provide some comfort that perhaps and you know, things are turning at a much broader scale. And then and, and the property sector, you know, does thrive in a growing economy. If you look at vacancies, especially on the office side, where you know you need people to be employed and companies to actually seek more space, you know, for that for those vacancies to to start to be absorbed. So I, I think a, a good a day overall, uh, both from a financial markets point of view, but also from a jobs numbers point of view, and hopefully that continues uh, into the near future. Thank you to Patrick Matidi. Patrick Matidi is the head of equities at Aluwani Capital Partners this evening on the cell phone broke show on the Money Show. Um, yes, it's uh, it's, so, it's so frustrating. Do you find do you find your calls go wobbly, more wobbly at this time of day? I don't know. Is it us? Was it you? Is it them? Who is it? That inflation number very important today. Three point two percent for uh, October down from 3.7% in September. It's a great move. But this trepidation, things have been, you know, the cycle has been so much longer and so much more precarious um, than one anticipated. So therefore, the lack of confidence is absolutely palpable. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. We'll get told of Dr. Neva Machita this evening. Uh, Neva is a senior economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies. It's an important conversation because we're short of cash as a country and 
We are cutting, cutting, cutting on budgets. That's what governments tend to do because it's the quickest and most efficient way of doing things. But unfortunately, it leads to all kinds of fallout. Neva's coming up with some alternative ideas. Let's hear her out this evening here on The Money Show. Coming up on your next show, David Tor. He is best known as co-founder of You Cook, the dinner kit delivery service. He'll be our shapeshifter. But he's got interest in property and he's part of one of the biggest music festivals in the country. And he's part of a re-commerce startup. And he's trying to make um, really battle textile wastage across Africa. He's a busy guy. He's an interesting guy. And he's uh, given us some time on the next Money Show. Plus, Wendy Nola, of course, our consumer ninja and graham codrington the future of work specialist and author with business unusual next time on a packed money show you're with bruce whitfield on 702 702 Economists are doing what they do best, and that is to frantically look for alternatives to what really is a blunt instrument of government action, that blunt instrument they use when they find themselves in trouble. When you find yourself in trouble, what do you do? You cut, because they're responding to crisis. Their first response to crisis is to do stuff in a hurry rather than strategically and with long-term thinking. And often those uh, d- those short-term actions can have disastrous consequences in the real world. Dr. Neva Macheta is one of the economists urging government to think differently rather than going on a cut, cut, cut strategy. Neva, good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. You're suggesting utilizing capital, which sits within the unemployment insurance fund environment, as an alternative to slashing budgets. What's the the big thinking there, Neva? Good evening. Good evening. Um, The big thinking is that there are actually several funds within government the UIF is just one of the largest. Um, they have built up this big surplus because basically you'll know if you're employed. Uh, employers and employees pay levies on income up to about 220,000 rand a year. And it turns out they don't pay out that much. So they take money, they pay out those, and then the rest of the banks. Well, actually, it's a public investment corporation. And it's a result of the state but which could definitely be used more productively elsewhere. Okay, explain to me in practical terms how it works, because the Unemployment Insurance Fund is a fund of insurance money for when things go pear-shaped, a COVID-type environment where people lose their jobs. People can then claim money, theoretically, from the Unemployment Insurance Fund. Isn't it there as a backstop, as a protection against disaster? Yes, but if you, you know, if you're paying twice as much as you need to on your insurance, at some point the market should compete down the rate. And in fact, the UIF Act says that if there's a surplus, it kind of implies it should be paid back to employers who, you know, collect it on behalf of employees as well as themselves. So I think really the problem is the levy was set too high. The obvious thing to do would be to cut the levy. Um, and then if government wanted to, it could increase other taxes because... If you look at it that, that way, this thing is now a dedicated tax where the money basically just goes into the bank. They use it to buy shares and so on, which presumably has some benefits, but there's a very large opportunity cost, especially when we're looking at cutting, you know, police health and education by between 3 and 5% in real terms. You know, those are very important services. <laughs> Yeah. And again, it's really important, I think, to highlight the fact that government has cut 6% in healthcare at a time 
where the Department of Health is trying to push through national health insurance without the budget to to measure. 4% in policing at a time where security is in crisis. 2% in education when education is in crisis. What might be the negative consequence of not funding these sectors? I mean, underinvestment, governments are struggling, I think, around the world with it, but particularly our government, because we have so much need and not enough money to go around. We somehow have to find the extra extra cash. Yes, and I think particularly in a very unequal democracy, it is a problem if we try and cut basic services. It, it really will just cause trouble. And I think part of the problem is always the Treasury that they try and do these cuts, then they can't do them, then they don't have a fallback because they haven't wanted to look at something that they would see as disruptive because it requires significant changes in existing systems. So even though, you know, using funds from the UIF, I mean, like I said, if they were in the private sector, they would have had to cut their rates long ago, you know? And the real issue is what then do you do with the money? Do you give some of it to the workers and the employers? Do do you use some of it? Like I said, you could increase taxes in other ways. How do you decide to use it? It's a different story. There's also the story of the funds that have already been accumulated, which you'd have to be quite careful with because, first of all, under the act, the UI has to agree what, what is done with them, but also um, they're pretty much once off. So you don't want to put them into something like, you know, healthcare, education, salaries, where you're making a long-term commitment. But it could, you know, there's still resources there that could be used more productively. I do think one of the problems, because there are several of these funds in government, is that if the agency that has that is accumulating the surplus doesn't pay interest on it, there's no incentive for them to figure out some way of reducing it. From their point of view, they're happy to let it just pile up. And they're not the most efficient at distributing it either. So many complaints <laughs> around the unemployment insurance yeah. fund. If it was well managed and well and, and well administered, then I think we'd feel a little bit more amenable towards it. You, sp- you speak in a, in a piece that you wrote today saying we need to prioritize national development over pacifying creditors and avoiding disruptive changes in government systems. We have now got our biggest line item, of course, is paying those creditors who lend us money because we keep borrowing money in order to fund expenditure. We're not growing this economy in a way that makes it sustainable. We can keep digging into and taxing more and and taking away more. Um, But if we're not growing, Neva, surely that is the solution ultimately is to get some growth in this economy, to get more people in jobs so that we can tax those people um, and those people can make a contribution to society society and in so doing have fewer people dependent on society i mean growth is ultimately the answer isn't it of course it is but what i would argue is you know we are a very mining dependent economy we've done the classic thing that when commodity prices fell in 2011 since then our revenues have been growing more slowly than our expenditure that is the classic thing that happens when you're commodity dependent and then when commodity prices went up again and if you've seen michael Sachs's piece he, he makes this point that Commodity prices went up very speculatively under COVID and when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, And I think Treasury was just kind of hoping that they would stay high, even though experience shows they won't. And that was also clearly speculative. But these are all the classic things that happen when you're a commodity-dependent economy. So it's easy to say we should grow. But in a commodity-dependent economy, when your export prices fall, it's hard to figure that out. And so I'm not saying we couldn't have done better. Of course, you could have done much better. But I think, of course, the long-term solution is grow your way out. But one of the big debates among economists, as you know, is if you cut the budget, you will likely slow down growth even further. 
So part of the problem with the pure austerity program, when the economy is going slowly, but by the way, inflation is not all that low, is that these are difficult choices. I would argue they have heard far too far on the side of austerity, given the growth rates in the GDP, given the socioeconomic needs of long-term development. But I do think it's not so simple just to say grow out of it, because, of course, we'd all like to do that. Yes, we would. And uh, the risk here, though, is when you dip into a country's savings, as has been suggested, going into the nation's foreign exchange and gold reserves that are held ah, in custody at the Reserve, the reserve. Bank. Those are not reserved. No, but, 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 but when you dip into emergency funds, which is the UIF is an emergency fund, you run the risk, of course, when calamity strikes, that the cupboard is bare, don't you? You do, except that you also always, as you know, this is everybody and every company has to decide how much liquid cash you need, how much you spend, how much you invest, how much you keep in reserves. Really, what many people are arguing is we have reserves that are too high, for reasons, you know, they were unanticipated. The UIF was never expected to have a surplus. Nor was the comp- compensation fund. When you read the act, it's very clear. They were expected to pay any surplus back, just like you would expect your insurance company to reduce your rate if they were building up too much money. You know, in the same way, if you have all your money in savings and your kids are going hungry, that's generally not considered a good economic strategy. <laughs> it's a point well made, Dr. Diva Machetla. Thank you very much indeed. Diva Machetla is a senior economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies. So often we get so used to a process that this amount of money is going out of company funds and going into um, and in, out of your pay packet to fund UIF. I've been paying UIF for so long. Um, that I would love to know what my personal contribution is and what everybody else around me's contribution is and been very fortunate not to have to draw on that unemployment insurance fund. I'm delighted to make a contribution to that unemployment insurance fund so that people who need it can use it. But if I, if we are contributing a disproportionate amount of money to the UIF, and this is where I need an independent and objective voice on this, if somebody understands this and can either come out in guns blazing in support of Dr. Neva Macheta and say this is the best idea and I can't understand why Treasury hasn't seen it, or tell us why this is the world's worst idea. I'm curious on that particular front as well, get the discussion and the debate flowing on The Money Show. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, that U.S. consumer price inflation number that we've been talking about this evening is interesting. It's sending lots of really big and important and positive signals. There's certainly markets are interpreting them as big and positive uh, signals in terms of the beginning of the end of the middle of the end of the beginning of the end of inflation, roughly. Dr. Adrian Saville, Professor Adrian Saville, investment specialist at Genera Capital and Professor at Gibbs. Um, is it the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning of the end? Where are we? <laughs> I think the answer to that, Bruce, is yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I thought I would right, <laughs> finally at one point. Um, the market has responded um, very enthusiastically to to the news um, uh, because it appears to be, you know, exactly as you're suggesting, perhaps end-ish um, of what's been uh, a very difficult um, and stubborn uh, inflationary period. Um, th- that's the that's the bright light. Um, 
you've uh, you've got me here as an economist, so my job is to be depressing um, and to put a big question. Uh, and that question is, I wonder, um, you know, if this is a false dawn, uh, just given the size of the stimulus that's been in the economy and that um, uh, the monetary stimulus that's been in the economy and um, there is still this uh, endeavour to try and achieve uh, the, the so-called soft landing. Look, we've been talking about the flippin' soft landing thing for the last <laughs> three years. It's been widely speculated about. And so far, the naysayers have been proven horrifically wrong, wrong thank goodness. Yeah. Um, because... Um, this economy has been not slowed down. Job creation mm-hmm. has not slowed down. The, the the level of wage increases has increased at a rate higher than uh, or relatively close to inflation. It's actually been a remarkably good environment, particularly in the United States. It's taken everybody by surprise. Yeah. Well, you know, when you state this economy, um, that's exactly what I would um, uh, sort of point out is the uh, is the defining parameter is it's really the U.S. Uh, that has achieved the soft landing and you are hard-pressed to find examples anywhere else. Europe hasn't had a soft landing. Europe has landed hard and it's been landed for quite some time. Um, UK has been uh, hard landing or hardish landing and landed for some time. Japan's been landed for about 20 years. Um, many emerging markets have been in on-off territory. So it really is only you know, the US uh, that stands out. Um, in terms of uh, the developed markets, there are a couple of emerging markets which uh, which stand out as exceptions, not China, but certainly India. But these are the exceptions. They're not the rule. Having said all of that, it is remarkable, uh, you know, just how resilient um, and robust the growth story has been in the U.S., and that's being reflected in the volatility of stock markets, the the ebb and the flow and the and the euphoria and the fear very accurately reflected. Three weeks ago, I think probably the end of October, the mm. S&P 500 was, 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 was really Minus five. sorry for itself. Since yeah. then, I think we've had 11 or 12 trading days. We've seen a 10% mm. move in the S&P yep. 500. I mean, admittedly, the S&P 500 is, you know, predominantly six or seven shares. But still... Yes. There's a huge, the, 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 the volatility that we feel here is also being exhibited in other markets because of that level of uncertainty that you, you reflect on. Yeah, you know, and so you know, in of the U.S., I wouldn't want to, you know, overdo or overstate the, the on-off uh, mood in terms of economic performance. The economic performance has been incredibly strong. Less uh, unemployment rate under 4% for um uh, a, a couple of years back to back, you know, these numbers are unprecedented. Uh, you've got uh, uh, resilient economic growth, inflation, which looked like it could, you know, run away and run away for some time, has calmed. But I want to say has calmed for now. Um, and it's my big reservation because uh, the way in which it's been calmed is by uh, a, a coupling of base effects that we are comparing to high prices of a year back, which means all else equal, inflation rates are going to look lower. That's just statistical reasons. And the second is you have had some inflationary pressure taken off, especially out of energy prices. So those things have helped. 
um, both of those reverse out very, very easily. And we've seen the uh, effects in the Middle East um, put a fire back under energy prices and the base effect will simply fall away. And then um, you've got inflationary forces that are resident and especially wage inflation, which you referred to earlier, Bruce, um, that that wage inflation, once it gets stuck into the system, has a very hard time passing out um, uh, of the system. And so you get resident inflation. Now, if we add that into uh, an economic circumstance that globally is increasingly fragile, um, then I just find it hard to see how the U.S. escapes this uh, this landing forever and ever. It would be... Un- Dr. Adrian Saville, thank you, Adrian. Sorry, cell phone signal breaking up again. Investment specialist at Genera Capital, but fascinating insight and really important because while we can celebrate in the short term and markets are going completely and utterly bananas today, there are signals of a slowdown coming again. That signal is coming in shipping. Our signals feature, which launches just after Eyewitness News at 7 o'clock, will bring you up to speed on that. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106FM. Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Got a brand new feature for you this evening, which I'm hoping you will contribute to. Um, bring us ideas. So what signals are you seeing? And I'm not talking about the sort of smoke signals and the worries and all that sort of stuff. Just interesting economic data. If you pick up a data point that you think we should be considering in our terms of our signals feature, you'll get the picture in just a moment. Because every day things are happening in the news that we don't pay direct attention to, but they do send us signals about what's really going on in the world. I was reflecting today on LinkedIn about uh, the Prime, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak stunning the UK political establishment yesterday by bringing the former Prime Minister David Cameron back as Foreign Secretary. It's a move that will really upset the right wing of the Conservative Party. I mean, the ANC is divided on many issues, but so are all political parties. Republicans are divided as to whether or not Donald Trump is the best candidate for them and for the United States and for the globe, for global democracy at next year's elections. The UK has got a debate as to whether the Conservative Party is good for them. And within the Conservative Party, you've got people with very, very diverse political views. One of the centrists, people regarded as fairly sensible by most members of the party is a guy called David Cameron, the former prime minister. The right wing's not going to allow it. Um, and they don't like the fact that David Cameron has made a comeback to politics. But maybe that's the genius of Rishi Sunak finally coming to bear as Rishi Sunak looks to make his party electable in elections next year. Certainly Britain's Labour Party is 20 points ahead in the opinion polls and they're not offering anything particularly inspiring or uplifting or different um, in any sort of way. Um, so interesting that Rishi Sunak is making a pitch to make the party uh, electable. I, I reflected today saying David Cameron, when he left in 2016, he messed things up really badly. I mean, he allowed a referendum that his predecessors had not uh, allowed. He campaigned against leaving the European Union, even though he gave British voters the option to do so. And then they voted to leave, 52 to 48 percent. And it's a massively divisive issue in that economy and remains so. And then he bailed. He just went, okay, fine, not my problem. I don't care. I didn't, I didn't, I can't possibly implement uh, Brexit, so I'm not going to do it, and I'm out. 
But in the background, he's been quietly working the political environment. And it's interesting. He's, I saw a quote from him today saying that, you know, you don't, uh, you, as, as a predecessor, you don't uh, criticize your successes. And he's had plenty of room to, to criticize. Somebody like a Boris Johnson comes out boxing. Liz Truss is highly critical of uh, the British government. Uh, David Cameron. Uh, stayed quietly in the background, advising and hand-holding and cajoling and supporting, uh, but not ever coming out in public. And it just struck me that anybody who leaves a job, and I, I wrote this on a LinkedIn post earlier today, just to say, look, you know, the temptation to tell your boss to get stuffed, to tell your boss that you hate their dress since you've never liked their taste of music and actually their breath smells, whatever it might be. Um, is quite strong in some cases where people leave companies. And what David Cameron did was he just went quietly into the background, and suddenly he's at the forefront of global politics again. That's smart operating uh, for David Cameron. The signal I want to talk about this evening is one that we're not seeing in the mainstream. Um, and it is interesting because we've seen lots of signals, positive signals, that inflation is coming down and interest rates could come down and therefore there could be stimulus coming into the global economy and the currency has strengthened, the rand against the dollar. All of that stuff is really positive. But at the same time, one of the world's biggest shipping companies has this year cut 10,000 jobs. Maersk, which is one of the world's biggest shipping companies, has cut 10,000 jobs as what it call, part of what it calls rigorous cost, uh, rigorous cost containment measures. And it says they may need more redundancies. Now, what Maersk does, and it transports, see, the containers in our harbors on a regular basis, but it moves stuff worldwide for the likes of Nike, for example. It's seen its profits fall by 90% in recent quarterly results. And it says... Prices for shipping are worsening. Now, we've got Dave Watts, the maritime consultant at the South African Association of Freight Forwarders, to explain to us what's really going on in global shipping and what signals we should be interpreting from what Maersk is telling us, that they are shedding jobs at the rate that we shed electricity. Dave Watts, welcome to The Money Show this evening. What are are the signals that is being sent by Maersk? In an environment where we feel things should be getting better, Maersk is saying, no, 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 global trade is getting worse and likely to get even worse. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, nice to speak to you again. Uh, yeah, I think Maersk have, have got the issues, <clears throat> maybe some of the background. You know, just post-COVID, um, when there was the American, our American friends had a vast amount of money to spend, we got into a situation where um, freight rates just went through the roof. Some crazy numbers were being quoted. And companies like Maersk, I think probably 21, 22 made a vast amount of money. They were really doing well. Their shares went through the roof, as did probably shares of other quoted companies. Uh, what subsequently happened is really just a question of overcapacity and less demand. That's got a lot to do, I think, with all sorts of things going on in the global economy at the moment. You know, we're hearing a lot about reshoring and nearshoring, where, uh, and, and of course, the difficulties we faced with supply chains when this whole catastrophe happened and there were... 100 container ships sitting off Long Beach and and, uh, Los Angeles ports. People, especially importers and manufacturers, decided there might be better ways of looking at their supply chain. So I guess that's a part of the reason. I think overall, uh, international trade is dropping off. And as you rightly say, Maersk have taken a big hit. I think I haven't seen them recently in terms of this week, but I think last week they, they indicated that they were really struggling and their shares fell off the cliff. So, yeah, I think generally speaking, um, the, the shipping trade is taking strain now. It had a wonderful year. They made absolute fortune. 
and now things are not so exciting. I can see here locally that, or, or not so much locally, that freight rates coming in here have, have dropped quite nicely. <clears throat> From China, I'm just looking at some now at 1350 for a 40-foot box, $1,350. Uh, that's that's one hell of a lot less than it was just a year, 18 months ago. So, yeah, I think it's international trade. A lot of the issues going on, I guess some of the other issues that we're facing at the moment are also impacting on trade. Obviously, Ukraine and, and Russia more than probably the, far, the Middle East situation that won't have impacted it as yet. But, yeah, uh, you're, you're quite right. Um, we are seeing a drop in international trade, and that's impacting on, on shipping lines. And they have probably over capacity, got too much capacity and, and at the end of the day, not enough business at the moment. So we're certainly seeing that. Not, not probably the case too much into South Africa. We're still fairly busy. Uh, we, as I reported last week, a hell of a lot of ships parking outside. So yeah, globally, I think it's global trade taking a bit of a dive uh, or a bit more than a bit of a dive and that's impacting on, on the bigger lines carrying and in particular carrying across the uh, to and from, going east-west, not so much north-south. East-west is where all the big numbers are, whether it's across the Pacific or across the Atlantic. Uh, and that trade is is, uh, is nowhere near what it needs to be for them to run their vessels at full capacity. But that's reflecting in the, the Chinese economic numbers. I mean, we saw a, a story today talking about how uh, there's less money flowing into to China uh, than is flowing out of it. So more money is leaving China at the moment than being reinvested in China. The Chinese economy is slowing and we know this. And so the east-west shipping also tells you that there is a big slowdown in China. Again, it reaffirms it because there just aren't the goods moving across the oceans in the same way as were happening before COVID. Yeah, 100%. I guess, you know, at the end of the day, some of the US, I won't want to call them sanctions, but some of the US controls uh, and their issues with China, which I think as we speak, they're trying to improve a bit with the meeting in San Francisco between Xi and, and uh, uh, the US president. So, but at the moment, yeah, I think all of those things adding together, you know, little bits and pieces here and there, and the overall result is, is uh, exactly what you've just described. And I think certainly China in particular, uh, certainly not enjoying a good time at the moment in, economically, and that's probably due to a fact of a, a falling away of, of exports. I mean, when I was last at the World Economic Forum and the, the chief executive of one of the biggest microchip companies in the world was talking about deglobalization, and you mentioned it a moment ago, that nearshoring, offshoring, reshoring mm-hmm. of trend, where companies that were doing 80% of their manufacturing in China suddenly realized that actually when things go properly pear-shaped and you can't get commodities from the mines to the ports and from the ports to the factories and from the factories back to the ports and into the global economy. You can't have 80% of your, your, your manufacturing sitting in one geography. And they were talking um, about moving their manufacturing into five different jurisdictions. And I'm sure it's that sort of thing that is happening and the manufacturing of the iPhone um, being moved exclusively from China, also now in India de-risking the way global trade works and that's going to have an impact on the stuff that has to be shipped where it has to be shipped and how often it has to be shipped 100 percent. i think a good example of course is mexico which is seriously reassuring where uh, companies are, are have established and will continue to establish especially manufacturing and assembly plants down there um, as a matter of fact, the car I drive is a Volkswagen and it's made in Mexico. I thought it came from Germany. It didn't. 
<laughs> so, you know, that kind of, of issue, that, that, of course, is probably something the Germans need to look at because the same problem arises there. You get some kind of issue in, in your supply chain and, and the muck hits the fan and you can't get your stuff, especially if you're running on a, a JIT basis or just in time basis and, and you, the result. But we're seeing that here now, of course. Our manufacturers are really struggling. Those who need... Uh, raw materials of one sort or another, and they're stuck on ships outside our ports. Um, they're, they're facing similar problems that you just described. Why are we doing that? If we were buying it from Nelspreit or somewhere, we wouldn't have to wait at the ports. So I don't think that's going to happen too quickly here. We don't have that sort of capacity. But it's a move that companies probably have to make because one just, you know, we've learned post-COVID that uh, these far distant or long, long supply chains have their dangers, and that can leave you really in the lurch. Thank you, Dave Watts, Maritime Consultant at the South African Association uh, for Freight Forwarders this evening on The Money Show. A new signals uh, feature, uh, and we're going to be looking every week at the stuff that isn't making it into the headlines and what that is telling us about what's happening in the real world. That, of course is going to be a really fun feature to pull together each and every single week as we try to give you the stories behind the stories, the news behind the news, and, of course, the facts that uh, make up the news. Well, don't make up the news, that inform the news. There we go, inform the news. Don't say make up the news, because we never make up the news. Inform the news, low. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report is brought to you by SAA, the ones who fly SAA's growing route network, now flying to Sao Paulo, Brazil, your gateway to South America. Dr. Rutelo Huindingui is the founding director of Tribe Africa Advisory. He's also got a fabulous book on the shelves called Rumble in the Juggle Reloaded. I-A-T-F sounds like a swear word, Rutendo, but what does it actually mean? <laughs> hey, Bruce, good to hear you. And, 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 uh, it does sound like a swear word. Uh, and initially when I heard it uh, about ITF, I just thought another conference on Africa. Uh, there are a lot of those African investment forum right now. I'm in Cape Town at the Africa, uh, Africom conference. But uh, as I was reading some of the headlines, Bruce, I was astonished to find out that even Zimbabwe, who's, who's gone there with their struggling economy, actually were able to seal a 14 million US dollar deal which uh, with a focus on investing in agriculture, mining, manufacturing in partnership with African banks. So uh, it brought a lot of it, it headlines and I said, gosh, there must be a lot of things happening there. Um, and uh, I think the, that trade initiative was spearheaded by the Africa Union and African Bank as brought together by the 1,600 exhibitors, exhibitors uh, 35,000 conference delegates and uh, there's plus or minus 43 billion US dollars uh, worth of trade happening. So it's probably quite a, a serious event and worth following. I know a lot of OEMs are up there from a car manufacturing perspective. So I think worth following and following the deals that follow through, Bruce. No, absolutely. I mean, Zim getting a little bit of investment coming through there as well. It's not vast, but it's nice to see it where it's nice to see when things sort of start to perk up even in isolation. Yeah, no, 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 no it does. Uh, and it's in Egypt, which is an interesting perspective uh, or an interesting geographical location because really up North Africa, quite close obviously to the Middle East with all the dynamics that are happening there. Um, so, but I think the key thing uh, at the end of the day, when you look at the greater Africa continental free trade agreement and what it's doing 
you know, 43 billion US dollars worth of trade happening on the continent in line with that entire in terms of increasing our, our trade into Africa trade from 15% to, to more than 15% uh, is a step in the right direction. I'm always wary uh, with regards to these big conferences, um, a lot of talk, a lot of activity. But if small countries that are struggling are able to secure deals, and I'm using Zimbabwe, I guess it's a bit closer to home for me, then it's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of a step in the right direction. The responsibility is obviously the, the ordinary man on the ground gets the benefit of that, and that's always the test going into the future. The tech revolution, the much spoken about tech revolution and technology and smartphones and the development of the internet have fundamentally changed the way Africa connects, or the world connects. But Africa in particular doesn't have the same level of physical infrastructure as many other parts of the world. And so digital connectivity is absolutely critical. And AfriLabs has been looking at this tech revolution and they started, I think, with five members in four Africa. African countries probably more than 10 years ago now. And it really has yeah. expanded wonderfully, hasn't it? No, it has. It's grown to 435 members across all 54 countries. I think the, the sort of differentiator with AfriLabs is that not only are they creating a hub, but I think this is uh, this trend was actually, this specific uh, uh, community meeting was, was in Rwanda, which always, always positions itself in terms of supporting that. But it's not really, it's not only just in terms of creating the right environment for policy advocacy, for networking, but they've also brought innovative financing models because the challenge with all startups or with all innovative ideas is how do you finance it and get people to actually put money in there in a confident manner, realizing there's a return on investment. I mean, McKinsey, just to give you uh, some figures to see the kind of money that's involved, uh, Bruce, McKinsey estimates that uh, Africa's digital economy will reach uh, 712 billion US dollars by 2050. So that, that's a big chunk of change. I mean, that's probably with small countries' GDPs if, if you look at it. But um, with all this, you know, with this catalytic, catalytic Africa program, with innovating financing model that AfriLab is doing, it and their partnership with also the African Business Angel Network, it actually creates uh, a sustainable model that is not only just about talking about innovation, but also supporting the rollout and the financing of it, which is absolutely critical. And the nice thing, it's not just Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda has been a, a star performer in this space for a long time and remains, I think, pivotal to the success of, uh, to the success of, it, of digital economies across the region. But it's not just Rwanda, is it? No, no, it's not just uh, Rwanda. I mean, the, the whole program is across a number of countries. Um, obviously, East Africa... When you look at your Kenyas and you look at West Africa, you look at the Nigerias, they're probably participating one way or the other. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the key thing is, uh, like you mentioned, Bruce, right at the beginning, you know, it started off with five members, uh, but now it's across all the 54 countries. So in a way, it's also galvanizing the contract, uh, continent with regards to this. I think the other challenge that is there, Bruce, is that, you know, it's, it's easy to say 54 countries, but we know each country, the dynamics are different, the level of impact uh, the, the level of growth, the, the regulatory system, uh, structure and the framework, how much does it support it? South Africa will be different to Swaziland, which will be different to Mozambique, which will be different to Egypt. So that is always the challenge. But the fact that there are people willing to, to invest the money and they see the 712 billion US dollars potential of the market, that in itself is a big plus. You've just got to go down what's it called the Diamond Walk that connects Santon City to the Santon Convention Center. It's a part of the world that you'll be familiar with because it's a thorough 
affair for us. We don't shop there. But, um, the, uh, and it's all the big global brands. It's all of the big show-off things, the, the shops with the cash counters. Uh, that, that freaks me out on the, on the, top, of the, on the top of the counters because so many people just bring in cash to buy their, their luxury goods. But I love how Made in Africa stuff is doing well all over the world. I mean, but particularly on the African continent, I think we're beginning to appreciate what it is that we're creating, right? We are, Bruce, but I think what's exciting about this, and it probably talks to that whole inter-Africa trade and trade in itself. I mean, the I mean, I saw this headline in terms of fashion and crafts, and it's estimated that uh, we're exporting plus or minus 15.5 billion US dollars of, uh, of, of fashion uh, from Africa uh, into the global market. And Nigeria being a key player, obviously because of their of their economy, but also in terms of their population is quite involved with that. Uh, and you know, and the UNESCO director, Audrey Azului, uh, highlighted this point. But I think what it does talk to when it comes to fashion, because obviously Africa has always been agricultural, so we grow cotton uh, in a lot of the regions and we produce it. But obviously for us to have, uh, to be exporting fashion, that means we're actually manufacturing locally. And that's a big game changer in terms of value chain, in terms of uh, producing uh, products or, or making products uh, with added value and then exporting them. So it, 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 it's a double-edged sword, but not in a negative sense, in a positive sense, in terms of where we're creating work, where we're, we're, we're growing our export market and um, making an impact that matters. So it, it's, an, it, it's, it's a great number to look at it in terms of from, industri- from when you speak industrialization from an Africa perspective. Most certainly is. And then uh, wouldn't it be nice to have a massively profitable, highly sustainable Africa Football League? Have we got one? Could we get one? Is yeah. there one in the wing? We have. And, and I've been tracking this because Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, um, obviously he was actually in South Africa over the weekend uh, and he watched the Soweto Derby. Uh, with Petrus Motsepe, the CAF president. Uh, so uh, besides the soccer, and before that, he was in Tanzania with Mohamed Dweji, who's also a billionaire. Uh, the, maybe that's why he's not visiting you and I, Bruce, because we're not billionaires. So his main drive in terms of coming down to Africa is specifically to, 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 to launch off the Africa Football League, which is a, which there was something that tried in Europe, didn't work out, but in Africa has taken off uh, with uh, a South African team called Sundowns winning over the weekend. But what interested me was, was the commercials around it, the economics around it. This, this, this program is just launched off. And the key funders, uh, believe it or not, are Saudi Arabia and the Rwanda government for the first tournament. So once again, Rwanda is featuring, uh, I know it's featured on the basketball scene. We've talked about it featuring on the innovative hub scene, but it's also featuring with regards to uh, this, uh, this AFL. And, um, and it's also pulled in Billionaires like Petrus Motsepe, it's also pulled in Mohamed Dweji. Uh, so it creates, I think it just shows the diversification of the commerce of, of soccer from a global perspective. And if the guys are willing to invest in Africa, uh, FIFA aims to make 50 million US dollars out of it and with, in the first sort of few seasons and inject 1 million in each of the country. Uh, with our past history of local federations, let's hope the money also goes to the benefit of the players. But it's an interesting thing to observe and follow through, Bruce. 
No, absolutely. Rutendo, thank you so much. Rutendo Huindingui um, with us this evening. And Rutendo is a fabulous communicator on issues around the African continent because he is embedded on the African continent. Chantel, of course, is the head of equity research at FNB Wealth and Investments. And I, I would assume, Chantel, I'm assuming that your job is so much easier than it used to be because there are only a handful of individual stocks on the JSE to analyze anymore. So actually, your job, you've like got a half-day job that you sort of stretch to a full day, or not? Bruce, the interest in offshore investments has more than counted uh, the lower number of listings on the JSE. I mean, five years ago, we weren't covering international stocks, and now my team is covering over 100 international stocks. So the, the 40 or so companies that we no longer cover, net, net, with a few new listings in between, uh, we're very busy, Bruce. Okay, so just checking in. I would, I would hate you to be bored. <laughs> I hate you to be bored. Um, talk to me br briefly about the, the need to cover these stocks. Because on the one hand, South Africa has be, we become a difficult place to invest. People don't like the currency exposure. They don't like the fact that we don't have many technology companies. We don't have a huge diversity of, of companies, particularly when it comes to technology and innovation. We've got some really good solid mining companies, really good banks, really good insurance companies, some fairly decent retailers. But the, the world is a big and wonderful and diverse and exciting place. And um, with many restrictions lifted for most people when it comes to their ability to invest offshore, the flexibility is, is there for investors. Yes, and, and I think that that is why we have also given that opportunity to our clients to get to know offshore, offshore stocks a little bit better. Um, and obviously you have the big ones where there's a lot of interest. Uh, but I think one of the reasons we still love covering local stocks in particular is because you've got these little gems. You've got these smaller cap and mid cap stocks that offer so, so much value. Um, you have to kind of get that balance right. Uh, because you do have this whole big, wonderful world, but you also have some really incredible companies listed on the JSC uh, at bargain basement prices. And when you consider your investment exposure, you want to asset liability match to a certain extent, right? You don't want all of your money offshore if you are planning to stay in South Africa longer term. Exactly. So you're looking for opportunities in our market. And yes, you could invest in the top 40 and you could see the top 40 languish where it is and has for the last five years, and you could lose hope in the future of the JSE saying, well, my money's not growing in value. We can dig a little deeper. What are some of your gems? Yes, so I think one of the, the things that we've identified out of this delisting trend, I mean, there's obviously a, a, a lot of negativity around the JSE shrinking. Just for context, the, the JSE has probably shrunk by about 5% this year on a net basis. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange has shrunk by 7.5%. So this isn't only a, a local phenomena, but we've been thinking about the opportunity sets available in this delisting trend. Because when we look at why companies are delisting, it's sometimes due to liquidation, sometimes they're not complying with regulatory requirements, but mostly it's because they're being taken out by another company, founding exactly. family, or the management team. So the opportunity is there to invest in something that is super cheap and either gets taken out or 
you can just wait for the interest rate cycle to turn, for interest to return to the local market, for volatility to subside, and you'll get your upturn anyway. We we hope so, and I, I wonder if we we've not, now not turned so negative on the JSE that we're going to miss that opportunity as well, Chantal. Because investors' eyes have sort of moved beyond South Africa. They go, "Well, South Africa is a basket case, therefore it's pointless investing on the JSE." So therefore, I'm going to go and put all my money where everybody else puts their money, and they're going to go and put their money into U.S. dollars, and they're going to go and put it into, say, American companies, the S&P 500 companies, the big Fang stocks, and the the those popular shares because that's what's worked so well over the last five ten years and people have done incredibly well from that strategy as we've seen today no direction is ever guaranteed not even on a daily basis and the dollar can suddenly weaken stocks on the US markets can also weaken as the rest of the world opens up when interest rates come down which they will do at some point next year right Yes, and, and you have to think about it in terms of, of diversification and in terms of valuation. So U.S. stocks are not cheap. I mean, you, you could expect pretty good growth out of the technology stocks longer term, right? But it matters where you buy as well. Most of these companies are trading on very demanding valuations. Um, in contrast, in South Africa, even if you were if you identify just a couple of stocks that delisted this year or were bought out this year, um, uh, you would have outperformed the U.S. market anyway. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a few great examples of what these returns were like. I mean, if you look at uh, the advanced health finder buyout, if you bought that thing before it was announced, you would have made 150%. If you bought L2D before the announcement by Liberty and Standard Bank, stock that delisted today, by the way, you would have made 50%. Um, if you bought in Blue Place before the announcement that uh, SA Corporate took it out, you would have made 81%. Mediclinic, 70%. Distel, 43% before the rumors started circulating around the Heineken buyout. So those opportunities are there. And you have to think about the, the diversification benefits as well when you start looking at some of these smaller unloved companies on JAC. Your retirement savings are being managed by professional fund managers that are maxing out their offshore exposure from a, from a Reg 28 perspective. They're already in Microsoft, right? You don't need to buy Microsoft by yourself. Your South African money is in all the top 40 stocks. You don't need to buy... Um, you don't need to buy Nasperson process for yourself. The, the diversification benefits of taking some of your discretionary money and investing in this unloved space in the market, um, I think is also a reason to, to start looking at stocks that could possibly be, uh, take over targets because they're so cheap. Uh -huh. Okay, so the one, there's the possibility that they become takeover targets. There's also the possibility that they start becoming more profitable as the cost of capital reduces, as consumer spending increases, as interest rates come down. I mean, those are two positive scenarios. And we are there or thereabouts in terms of an economic cycle, I would think. Yes. The the only thing that you don't want to do is uh, buy a value trap because that can also happen during a time like this. So uh, instead of the cycle, well, the cycle will turn. It will count in most companies' favors, but some companies will still not make it despite being cheaply valued. So uh, those opportunities are absolutely there. 
Um, and you have to look at stocks that are cheap, firstly, cash flow positive, decent balance sheet, because their funding cost is just going to become cheaper. And if their balance sheet is in a, in a decent position, they'll be able to uh, push through a lot of those gains to, to the bottom line. Um, solid management teams, low free float, I think is also a possibility uh, or an early warning sign for a possible takeout. But as I mentioned, I mean, the value trap, maybe the finance costs will, will come down. But if, if the company is under pressure, revenue is not growing, the industry is in structural decline, uh, it's not a place that you want to be. No, exactly. And the, the way to tell the difference between a value trap and something that may very well see the valuation realized is those few things you pointed out, that balance sheet stability, the fact that they've got good free cash flows, because that's what investors are looking for around the world. It's how Warren Buffett made his quadrillions, not quite, but his, his billions, um, it, by finding those companies and then patiently sitting back and saying, you know what, in the fullness of time, this, you know, other people will realize um, that this thing is worth more than I paid for it. And at some point, I might want to sell it to them. So let them come. Yes, absolutely. And you can do the same thing in your own capacity um, in, in companies that are, that are super affordable. And even if they don't come, even if the takeout offer doesn't come, um, eventually the market will start realizing that this company should be rated at a higher level. The earnings growth will come through um, and you will start seeing a meaningful share price appreciation. I mean, just this week, we had a few small cap companies uh, release trading updates and trading statements. Um, and and finally, it seems as if investors are starting to take notice uh, of some of them. Um, the standout, of course, this week was Zeda, uh, the car rental business, Ava's budget car rental that was spun out of Barlow World. Company's been trading at below 10 Rand. Uh, when it listed, we had a fair value of 30 bucks on it. Um, and releasing a really strong trading statement. And finally, you've seen uh, some momentum coming into that name. Let's pick up on that and others in a moment, please. Uh, my guest this evening, of course, is none other than Chantal Marks, the head of equity research at FNB Wealth and Investments. Not just a shrinking JSE, but a hundred global companies that they do research on and introduce their customers to. We're looking at what is happening on the JSE and how you deal with the fact that your investment universe domestically is shrinking and what actions you should be taking. Chantal Marks is the head of equity research at FMB Wealth and Investments. Uh, so a moment ago, you're pointing to a wonderful opportunity that you see in the market or an opportunity that may have passed us by. Zida, the company that operates the Avis franchise in South Africa, spun out of Barlow World and is making tracks, literally. Yes, so this company, like most of the companies in the car rental space, as well as the general travel and leisure space, during COVID-19 was in a lot of trouble. So they removed so much excess cost uh, out of their overheads, and it's a much more efficient, leaner operation. Now you're seeing business tourism increasing. You are seeing international tourist arrivals coming through, people realizing that Uber is not the answer if you want to tour the garden route. And car rentals are, are picking up quite substantially. These fleets are expanding, but at the same time, they're still so focused on that cost base, which means that the, 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 the kind of the variable cost attached to uh, adding a, an additional vehicle to the fleet is, is 
what is the what what is going to be an issue here instead of the the fixed cost base so uh, a lot of benefit derived from that and um releasing a very strong trading statement uh, earlier this week and i think the stock was up 15% on the back of that trading statement i don't yeah. think the opportunity is done though i think this company still has far to go uh, this is just the start I mean, you said when it listed, you put a fair value on it of uh, 30 bucks. It's now sitting not even at half that level. And if you're, you know, if we anticipate that the recovering tourism continues the way it does, the rates that these guys charge to rent you their vehicles, because that's becoming quite demanding, um, all of these things operating very much in their favor. Yes, and and still on a three and a half PE, by the way. If you if you like looking really? at at PEs as an as an investor, yeah, forward PE. Three and a half times. So I mean, and this is an important uh, thing to understand, and we can never we can never explain it often enough, Chantel. I mean, when Chantel talks about a PE, a price earnings multiple of three and a half times, um, it's the price you pay, um, the multiple you pay on last year's profit. So the price times the earnings three and a half times is what you're paying, which is really, really cheap in a market that must be trading at an average, what, 12, 13, 14, 15? Where's our market trading? What's the average PE on the JSE at the moment? The JSE is so cheap, Bruce. It's on about an 11 forward PE at okay. the moment, um, where it should be trading more or less at around 14 relative, to, if, if you look at it uh, over history. But just to give and context the US to that considerably, considerably, uh, the, the, the US market considerably higher than that, of course. Yeah, at about 20 times. So, um, so you are, the, the JSE is on sale, but these small and mid cap companies are, are even more so on sale. Um, to give context to the type of company that Zeta is, it's a cyclical company, right? But it's in a growth industry. So typically you would put a PE of about nine or 10 times on a company like that. It's on three and a half. So, um, I, the, 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 the math is quite simple. The company is very cheap. And I've identified a few others as well, which I think uh, are, are pretty decent companies, but with uh, a reasonable prospect of being taken out. I don't necessarily think that Zeta is one of the companies that could be a takeout target, uh, but it certainly is one of those in the, in the small and, uh, and mid-cap space that you would want to own uh, longer term. Yeah, exactly. What else have you got? I mean, you talked about gems. And when you're going to talk about gems, you can't just give us one here, Chantal. You've got to give us more gems. We need more gems, please. Gems, gems. Yeah, I mean, so so I have a few in that I don't necessarily think are takeout targets, but that I really like. Um, probably my favorite is, is Master Drilling, um, which is just such a solidly run company. Um, they're in, they basically drill massive holes for, for shafts, uh, when we look at mining production and exploration. Mm. And mining companies have just been under investing. Uh, supply is going to become an issue in terms of critical metals like, like copper. So we would expect production over time to increase and these guys will benefit from it. They're actually the largest in the world. Um, when it comes to, to doing what they do. Uh, and I don't think a lot of investors what? realize it. Um, yeah, they're the largest in the world at what they do. It's, it's actually quite incredible and still head, um, headquartered in Fofel, which is something that I love um, <laughs> because it tells you that the guys have their feet on the ground. 
No, exactly. I mean, again, I, I love companies that are located in unassuming places. I mean, uh, the road builders uh, from Bloemfontein, the master drilling of Fochville, yeah. and the world's biggest multinational um, located in Umtlanga happens to be Aspen Pharmacare. I mean, we do do big things on a small scale very well, I think. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the road builders from, from Bloemfontein. That's Raubix, right? Um, yeah. a, a, another fantastic company to to consider adding to your discretionary portfolio, and and then I have a, I've I've looked at those metrics that we spoke about earlier: low valuation, mo- mo- um, multiple positive cash flows, decent balance sheet, low free float. Right, so these could be possible takeout targets. And top of the list was Signia. Um, the founders own the bulk of the yeah. business. Um, yes, they, of they also pay a. a yeah, they also pay a pretty decent dividend. Um, African Rainbow Capital, they've said that they're thinking about delisting. Yes. So <laughs> I think that's one and that the you can is, consider as Af- well. Trading. African but African Rainbow Capital is a really interesting one here because African Rainbow Capital is, what, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 25% investments in South African businesses, in great businesses that you can't buy shares in yourself so uh the the big golf estate um out, outside of of Parle and Stellenbosch um they they invested in there and a whole host of other marvelous businesses that you can't buy shares in but if you buy shares in African Rainbow Capital they've owned shares in those businesses and they've just not got the valuation they've wanted and they're getting really grumpy about it saying we know our company's worth more than you prepared to value it at so is it worth then buying the shares in an African Rainbow Capital in a Raubex in Fochville's mighty master drilling and in Zeda and if it doesn't get taken out well then management team might buy it out and if they don't buy it out the founders might buy it out and if that doesn't happen the profits may improve because the global environment is gradually looking up a little bit after years of of deep dark darkness and dismay yeah absolutely um i think that the 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 risk is actually quite limited to to the downside i mean considering something like a um african rainbow capital trading at a 55% discount to its net asset value. Um, and I mean, you mentioned, Val- I think it's Valdeby. Um, Valdeby and then they nice, have yes. Rain, Rain, the, the fastest growing mobile operator in South Africa currently. Yeah. Time Bank doing excellent things in, um, in Southeast Asia as well, which we know has a massive unbanked population, uh, but a major smartphone or very high smartphone penetration um, and very few digital banks that have been given licenses to operate there. But time has been given a license to operate there. Um, they're also heavily invested in uh, Alexander Forbes, who also yesterday put out an exceptionally strong trading statement. So, um, yeah, I, I don't understand why the share is trading as poorly as it is. Um, and I think the management team doesn't either. And that's why there's rumblings um, of a possible takeout offer to shareholders. I think your your main point here uh, that you that you're sharing with us, Chantal, is yes, the JSE is considerably smaller than it was 20 years ago. It is half the size of what it was 10 years ago, and it's five percent smaller than it was at the beginning of the year. 
this is a global trend. Do not panic. There are great companies, and there are great companies with plenty of upside. So ferret around with, uh, uh, with um, uh, an intelligent eye, and you should score well out of some domestic investments. Yes, and and by the way, I think that there's a much better chance of you making really good money in a delisting than there is in you making really good money in an IPO. So <laughs> pick your poison, right? Um, and I think that this this global trend of delistings really is a, a function of a very uncertain environment. It probably started a little bit before COVID because the money was a little bit too easy and they, and, and, and stress came into the market. COVID-19 happened. We have two ongoing conflicts, major conflicts in the world right now. A lot of uncertainty over the interest rate environment. No one wants to list in an environment like this. Well, some of them do, but very few companies feel comfortable doing that. So my prediction is going into next year, probably towards the second half of the year, once we have the interest rate cycle turning around, we could see a lot of new listings coming uh, globally as well as to the JAC. I mean, we've been waiting for we've been waiting for Coca-Cola bottling Africa to list. We've been waiting for African Bank to relist. We've been waiting for Virgin Active to list, and that, those are just the big guys. Uh, I'm sure there are so many other smaller companies looking for access to capital um, to grow both in South Africa and and uh, on the continent, or perhaps expand their operations outside the country. It just hasn't been the time to list. But um, these valuations uh, do do make these companies vulnerable to decent takeout offers, I guess. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Chantal. We'll leave it there. The head of equity research at FNB Wealth and Investments, uh, Chantal Marks, always phenomenal value when she joins us. Thank you so much for sharing tonight here on The Money Show.